listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Good morning. Good morning. You can have a seat. My name is Josh Wade. I'm on the elder team here at River City, and I've got the privilege of preaching from God's Word this morning. Before we get much further, let's uh, go to our Father in prayer. Oh God, what a privilege to belong to you through Jesus Christ. What a privilege to gather together and to rest assured that you're with us and among us. You are God with us. Bless us, please, as we open your word. Please speak to us through your word. Grow our knowledge of the greatness of your steadfast love for us. And would you give us a full measure of the comfort and joy that your spirit brings. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Well, this morning we're going to be in Psalm 48. And Psalm 48 celebrates a particular place. I'm sure you've noticed that people often compose songs about specific locations. Ray Charles sang, George on my mind. Leonard Skinner gave us Sweet Home Alabama. There's lots of other examples. I'm sure you can think of them. It's a practice that transcends eras and genres. We like to sing about places. It helps us to think about a particular place and to celebrate what makes it special. Psalm 48 is a song about Jerusalem, the capital city of ancient Israel, a beautiful city that sits atop Mount Zion. And this song was written to help the listeners and the singers meditate on the city and to cherish its unique beauty and strength. Strike team, you can go ahead and come down, by the way. If you need a Bible, please let the strike team know. And if you don't own a Bible, it's your copy to keep. Now this song, Psalm 48, it celebrates Jerusalem in a very particular way. It celebrates the city by recounting a glorious military victory. And this isn't unfamiliar to us. People from every nation on earth celebrate their country by singing a national anthem that commemorates some victory. Psalm 48 tells us that mighty nations had joined forces and gathered against the Jews. And though these enemies were far greater in number and strength, they were utterly defeated. An interesting thing about Psalm 48, at first glance, if you were to give it a quick superficial read, it seems pretty narrow in scope. It appears to be about a specific place on the map in a particular event that occurred there long ago. 
why exactly should this ballad for Jerusalem matter for us today? After all, we're separated from that city by several thousand miles, separated from the military victory it recounts by several thousand years. And what we're going to see this morning is that Psalm 48 is emphatically not narrow in scope. It's not really about a particular place, time, or event. It's about God's redemptive plan to spread his fame in the worship of his name to every nation and every generation. It's about as broad as you can get. This ballad of Jerusalem is truly for every nation across the globe and every generation that comes and goes. So as I read Psalm 48, listen carefully for the song's international and intergenerational breadth. Let's read Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together, and as soon as they heard it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguished as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Jerusalem rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. What exactly made Jerusalem such a special place to the Jews? Think for a moment about a place that's special to you. Think about a place that brings you a unique sense of safety and joy. My wife's parents live in Tampa, Florida, and my kids refer to those grandparents as Mots. That's my father-in-law, Mots, and Mom-Mom my mother-in-law. And we visit them in Tampa about once a year. And their home brings my kids a special sense of safety and joy. It's a beautiful home. It has a big front yard where the kids run and play. There's a broad, looping driveway where they ride bikes. Out back, there's a pool with a beautiful waterfall. If you go in the house... And you open the pantry, it's always full. It's magic. It's always full of good food. My children have been eating knockoff brands their entire lives. 
We go to Mott's and Mom Mom's house, and they experience real Cheez-Its. <laughs> serious. It's a wonderful home, but of course, the very best thing about it is that Mott's and Mom Mom are there. Mott's, my father-in-law, asks the best questions, and he listens with sincere interest. And he's always up for a game of baseball. Mom Mom gives the kids the very best back scratches, and she'll tell one captivating story after another. And when we go there, my kids forget I exist. They don't even realize I'm there. Mott's and Mom Mom are there. Special places are filled with special people. And in the end, it's particular people that provide us with a unique sense of safety and joy. And for the ancient Jews, Jerusalem brought an extraordinary sense of safety and joy because Yahweh, the living God, dwelled there. And all the earth, and indeed the universe, belonged to him. But it was in the temple in Jerusalem where his special presence could be found and felt. Look at the first three verses of Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Jerusalem is here described as the city of our God, his holy mountain, and the city of the great king. What exactly does it mean to say that God's presence could be found and felt in Jerusalem? And how did this work? How did people go about experiencing and enjoying his presence there? Before we dig into the details of this text, I want us to briefly consider the presence of God from a very broad level. The entire story of the Bible, the story of God's redemptive plan in history, can be understood by considering the presence of God and where we stand with respect to his presence. People were made for relationship with God. He literally designed us so that our highest purpose and our sweetest joy is to be near him, to know him, and to savor him. And the Westminster Confession declares our highest purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The Garden of Eden was so delightful because Adam and Eve had direct access to the very presence of God. When they sinned, They weren't merely banished from a beautiful garden. They were separated from the radiant holiness of God's glorious presence, separated from their highest purpose and their sweetest joy. Apart from God's presence, men and women live out restless and sorrowful lives. And God's redemptive plan is to bring banished sinners into his holy presence where our hollow hearts find meaning and where our despair turns to joy. And so we see throughout redemptive history, we see God move towards banished outcasts and graciously provide them with guidance for drawing near to him. Think about the patriarchs. 
God instructed the patriarchs to build altars so that they could draw near and worship. Then, following the exodus from Egypt, God provided Moses with instructions for building the tabernacle. This was a mobile dwelling place for Yahweh, and the Jews moved it from one campsite to another throughout their wilderness wandering. Eventually, the tabernacle was superseded by the temple in Jerusalem. And the temple symbolized God's solemn commitment to permanently dwell with his people, symbolized his steadfast love for the outcasts. So this is the redemptive historical context for Psalm 48. And in this text, we get a startling picture of the power of God's faithful presence and steadfast love. Look at verses 4 through 7 and really imagine the picture it paints. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic, they took to flight, trembling took hold of them there, anguished as of a woman in labor by the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. We don't know a lot about the historical context that led to this conflict. But the text itself indicates that multiple kings, multiple nations, joined forces and gathered uh, in order to conquer Jerusalem and capture its inhabitants. And the reference to ships of Tarshish which remains a really difficult phrase to say, ships of Tarshish. But that reference is significant. No amount of practice has helped me. Um, These were incredibly large and sophisticated merchant ships. And they didn't paddle in on canoes. This was the best technology available in that day. And the ships were used by powerful nations from far across the Mediterranean Sea. The end of the, wor- end of the world in that time of death. Powerful, wealthy, and sophisticated enemies have gathered against God's city and his beloved people. So what happens? Well, first we get astonishment. Then there's panic. Then trembling, anguish, and finally complete destruction. Have you ever witnessed someone tremble from panic or anguish? If you have, it's not an image you will easily forget. Perhaps you've witnessed a friend or family member endure a panic attack. Perhaps someone in your family once suffered or currently suffers from night terrors. It's a frightening image. And this is what happens when even the most formidable, wealthy, well-resourced, and innovative enemies rise against God's beloved people. The Lord displays the power of his presence and steadfast love for his chosen people. So Psalm 48 doesn't simply celebrate Jerusalem. And it doesn't merely commemorate a single military victory. This song celebrates that God has demonstrated the greatness of his steadfast love by dwelling with his people. 
That's the first point I want to make this morning. God powerfully demonstrates the greatness of his steadfast love by dwelling with his people. To be sure, this was a source of enormous comfort to the Jews who took refuge within the walls of Jerusalem. Can you hear the enormous relief and confident joy expressed in verse 8? As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Have you ever experienced sweet relief like this? Where you experienced the good news firsthand for yourself? I remember when I was a kid, so between fourth and fifth grade that summer, I was really anxious about fifth grade. Usually kids are thrilled about fifth grade. They get to be the top dog, king of the hill in elementary school. But I was nervous because one of the fifth grade teachers was named Mr. Cooper. And I'd never really talked to Mr. Cooper, but I just had a feeling he was a no-nonsense, strict kind of guy. And I was prone to get in trouble, so I didn't mix well with that type. Interestingly, my parents had told me, Josh, don't worry about Mr. Cooper. We've talked to other parents. He seems intimidating, but he's really a sweet, thoughtful, compassionate man. And I would kind of roll my eyes, okay, yeah. I just knew Mr. Cooper was the boogeyman. Well, sure enough, I ended up with Mr. Cooper in fifth grade. And I was like, this is going to be bad. I already struggle with teachers, and now I've got the boogeyman. And lo and behold, my first day, within the first couple hours, sitting in his class, I could see and feel and experience that this man was tender-hearted, compassionate, and thoughtful. Is that sweet relief, right? What I've heard about this guy is actually true. And we get some of that in Psalm 48. Can you imagine the Jews saying, it's true. All that our parents and grandparents told us, what the ancient prophets preserved for us in Scripture, God really dwells among us. How great is his steadfast love. A sweet comfort for the people that were hiding behind the walls of Jerusalem. But what's really amazing here, and for me, this is the most incredible thing about Psalm 48. This enormous comfort, this confident joy over the display of God's steadfast love and faithful presence, it's not just for the Jews. It's not merely for the people that were taking refuge in the city. It's also for the wicked men who had assembled against them. It's for their wives and their children. It's for their cities on the other side of the Mediterranean. You might say, wait, Josh, where are you finding comfort 
for these foreign armies. Last time I checked, they were in anguish, panic. They are trembling and utterly defeated. But look again at verses 9 and 10. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. And this same sentiment is evident at the very beginning of the psalm. In verse 2, we read, His holy mountain is the joy, not just of Jerusalem, not just of the Jews, but of all the earth. This is why Mount Zion is so very glad. It's why... The daughters of Israel are rejoicing in the streets. God reveals the greatness of his steadfast love to the nations by powerfully dwelling among his people. And this is the second and for me far more amazing point. God reveals the greatness of his steadfast love to the nations by powerfully dwelling among his people. He displays his glory and spreads the worship of his name to the ends of the earth. And God's people are watching this sweeping, redemptive plan unfold. They perceive the glory and the wisdom of God's ways. By dwelling with them, his steadfast love is reaching the world. So how do they respond? aside from dancing in the streets. Look at verses 12 through 14. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. And go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Two years ago, my family moved. We were living on 7th Street in North Fargo. We loved that home. And God's kindness was so evident to us there. But as my kids grew bigger, the home got smaller. And on top of that, Kate and I wanted capacity to foster multiple children simultaneously. And we needed a bigger home. So... We sold the house on 7th Street, packed up all our stuff, brought it a few blocks east, and then went back to 7th Street to clean the place. There was a lot of steps in between that, but... Anyways, Kate and I were back at the house scrubbing dirty fingerprints off every square inch of everything. And it's a really strange thing to find yourself in a place that is deeply familiar and even alive to you and yet to recognize that it's about to become a memory we packed up our cleaning supplies when we were done but before we walked out the door Kate and I took some time to walk through the house to go to every room and to reflect on God's kindness to us there. And we did that in an effort to secure forever those memories in our minds so that we could share them with our kids. Remembering takes work. 
We are so prone to forget. And our forgetfulness is a detriment not just to ourselves, but to our kids. The psalmist responds to God's display of steadfast love by exhorting the people to walk through the city, to take their time, to look at every wall, to walk through every passageway, to stand beneath each tower, and to see it all as a reminder of God's steadfast love. They're urged to actively remember for the sake of the next generation. So that's one way the psalmist responds to this display of God's steadfast love. But there's another far more subtle way that he responds. It's really easy for us to miss as English speakers, but it would have been remarkably clear to the original Hebrew singers of this psalm. Look for a moment at the two words this psalm uses to refer to the creator deity. We find the word Lord in verse 1 and again in verse 8. And Lord is a translation of Yahweh, God's personal name. It's his personal name like James or Frank or Tim. It occurs just twice in the psalm. In contrast, we find the term God in verses 1, 3, 8, 9, 10, and 14. This is a translation. The word God is a translation for the word Elohim. And it's the general term for the creator deity. It occurs eight separate times in this brief psalm. Why does this matter? I promise it's not just semantics. The words we choose matter. And we choose different words depending on our audience. My youngest daughter, Willa, is four years old now. She's growing in confidence and in her command of English. And she's telling more stories. And Willa will often tell stories about her big sister, Harper, who she adores. Now, when Willa tells a story about Harper to someone that knows Harper well, she refers to Harper as Harper. She uses Harp's personal name. But if she tells that same story to someone who's a relative stranger, someone who doesn't know Harper, she'll refer to Harper as my big sister with adorable pride. If you overhear one of these narratives, you'll hear Willa again and again with that adorable pride say, my big sister, my big sister my big sister. This is exactly what's happening in Psalm 48. Just as Willa cherishes her big sister and loves to tell stories about who Harper is and what she's done and what she said, so too Psalm 48 celebrates Yahweh and all that he's accomplished. But the text makes very little use of God's personal name. 
Instead, it uses the more general term when referencing God. Why? Because this song is not only addressed to the Jews who are on a first-name basis with God. It is addressed also to the surrounding nations who are not yet familiar with who he is, what he said, and all that he's done. Here's the point. It is God who reveals himself. It's God who powerfully displays his steadfast love and his faithful presence to the nations and the generations. And yet he guides his people to actively remember and thoughtfully proclaim the power of his steadfast love to the nations and generations. And that's the third point I want to make. God guides his people to actively remember and thoughtfully proclaim his steadfast love and faithful presence. Of course, these three points have a whole nother level of meaning for the church today. We have the wonderful privilege of living on the other side of the incarnation, on the other side of Pentecost. And because of that privilege, we enjoy a fuller sense of how God's steadfast love is displayed through his devotion to dwell among us. Matthew tells us that in the birth of Jesus Christ, Isaiah's ancient prophecy finds fulfillment. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Apostle John reports that in the person of Jesus Christ, the divine word dwelled or tabernacled among us. In Colossians, the Apostle Paul writes that in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself. And do you remember that Jesus, when he was threatened by the religious leaders of his day, simply and confidently asserted, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, he is the tabernacle. He is the temple. He is God with us in our midst. God left the perfection of the garden and entered the wasteland of this sinful world. And he did it to rescue the banished outcasts. In Jesus Christ, God fully displays the greatness of his steadfast love and his faithful presence with us. And what about now? It's been more than 2,000 years since the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we don't carry around a mobile tabernacle. And we don't have a great big physical temple. Where is God's presence now? Did his steadfast love leave when Jesus ascended? This is the exact thing the disciples were wondering. You remember, they were sitting in the upper room with Jesus, trying to have a good meal, which Jesus 
Jesus kept talking about and discussing his imminent death, and they listened on with shock and horror. And Jesus responds by promising the Holy Spirit, and he reassures his confused and anxious disciples by saying, I will not leave you as orphans. And it's through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we are the very temple of God. He has not left us. He is not far off. He's not even across the street. He's in us. I'm aware that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is quite a topic to raise towards the end of a sermon. I just want to say two things in connection with Psalm 48. I want to point out two things or two aspects of the Holy Spirit's ministry in connection with Psalm 48. Just as Jesus reassured his scared disciples on the eve of his death, the Holy Spirit, without ceasing, reassures us of our union with God and his steadfast love toward us. In Romans 8, Paul writes, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Through the Holy Spirit... God is with us, and a critical component of the Spirit's ongoing and ceaseless ministry is to reassure us of God's faithful presence and steadfast love. A second point about the Spirit's ministry. The Holy Spirit guides and empowers the church to proclaim God's steadfast love and faithfulness to the nations just before his ascension, right before his ascension, Jesus promises, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit reassures us of God's faithful presence and steadfast love, and he empowers us to proclaim it to the nations and the generations. Believe me, I know that this can seem like just a bunch of talk. Many of us don't feel like God is with us, not often anyways. We don't typically feel his presence. Maybe for some of us, if we're honest, we sometimes wonder about his love. Psalm 48 expresses this enormous comfort and joy over God's presence. But instead of comfort and joy, many of us feel our lives are beset with fear and sadness. In closing, I just want to say lovingly, I want to point out the depth of comfort And the height of joy, which receives expression in Psalm 48, it happened 
during an encounter with the nations. It's not a typical Wednesday or Thursday morning in Israel. And this is important. In the same way, when Jesus promised the power of the Holy Spirit to his disciples, he sent them to the nations. God's people experience the full measure of comfort and joy that his spirit provides as they proclaim his steadfast love to the nations and generations. And this is my final point. We most fully experience the comfort and joy of his presence as we're on mission, as we proclaim his steadfast love to the nations and generations. This happened in Psalm 48. It's happened throughout church history. And it will happen for us too. This isn't transactional. I'm not saying just go on a short-term missions trip and God will take care of your depression and anxiety. What I'm saying or what I'm trying to convey is that God himself is on mission. His redemptive plan is to reveal his steadfast love to all nations and all generations by demonstrating the power of his presence. When we proclaim his steadfast love, we join God in his work. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy or simple, that there won't be sorrows. But there is a special measure of comfort and joy as we join God in his work and proclaim his worth to the nations and generations. It's an old truism that the best way to learn something is to teach it. We get to savor his presence in a unique way as we can proclaim the worth of who he is. So, your special place, the one place that brings you a unique sense of safety and joy, is wherever God calls you to sing this ballad of Jerusalem. God will be with us. He will comfort us. He will give us joy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Psalm 48. God, we confess that sometimes you feel far off. Sometimes there is a lot more fear and sadness than we'd like to admit. Oh, how we desire to be near you, to know the full measure of the security and joy your presence provides. Oh God, would you give us what's expressed in Psalm 48, individually and as a body. Oh, help us and send us to sing this ballad of Jerusalem and to know you and to savor you as we do it. 
reveal your glory to the nations and to the generations. Prepare the minds and hearts of those who will hear about you through us. And may our joy be all the more full as more people become brothers and sisters to us and participate in this joy that you've prepared for us. We love you. Amen.